Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. We pray, God, as we draw near to you, we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would become more bolder in our declaration of you in our lives. God, we become wiser in our application of your truth. We'd become more intimate with you throughout the day, God. And then your glory would emanate from who we are and where we are. And identity would be fixed in you, God. And we want more of you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we come into this room with so many different places, God. And we ask, God, for wherever we are, that you would meet us, Jesus. And so tonight, we surrender. We surrender all of our hearts and our minds and our soul and all of our strength to you, God. And so use us. Use us up, Lord. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to have you here. Um, tonight, we're going to continue on in our series. Our series is in Revelation, right? And so what we've been continuing to say is that Revelation was never intended to be a scary book. It's actually intended to be a book that you should be encouraged from because God is revealing the future to us. He's showing us how all the world will end up, all right? And so in light of that, <clears throat> in Revelation, in the first parts of it, what we learned was, was God was revealing some issues that were happening within the church. There were seven different churches that God ended up unpacking and telling them what was really going on in their church. Then God moves on in chapter 6 through 19. There's this amazing moment where there is a, what we call, the theologians call a great tribulation or a judgment of the earth. And many would try to figure out, is the church there during this judgment period? And so people have, you know, we, we, some of you have heard of the rapture. And, and you'll ask, well, when does the rapture happen here in Revelation? And the reality is, is that it's very difficult, even though there are people who have it all figured out, praise God. It's very difficult to pinpoint exactly when that moment happens. So what I mentioned to you last week, and I want to encourage you again, the book of Revelation should be seen more like an art gallery, less of a timeline, okay? You should be able to see different images that you try to make out and try to understand, but you don't need to focus so much on the chronology of it, but you should focus on the imagery, right? But what we do know is that there is a scene in heaven when the church finally meets Jesus. And when you understand this moment of the church finally meeting Jesus, you'll actually understand your relationship to Jesus more. Last week, I talked about the movie Sixth Sense. I was told that I don't have to do a spoiler since the movie's 20 years ago, and I felt horrible about my age. <laughs> I was like, have y'all seen this? It's like, yeah, when I was two. I saw, so I, I had to go through that moment in front of everybody. But, um, so, but, but in, the, in the movie Sixth Sense, when you get to the very end of the movie, you come to realize that 
this boy who sees dead people actually has been talking to Bruce Willis, who was dead. And so what ends up happening is, stop, you've seen it. <laughs> so, and then what happens is you go back and you look at the very beginning of the movie and you go, oh, and you start unpacking, right, the entire movie again. So if we get to the end of the book, it says something about our relationship with Jesus. It says our meeting with Jesus will culminate in a wedding feast. And it tells us so much about our relationship with God. Now, what is our relationship to God? That's, that's us to God. What do you call God, right? Some people might pray and call him master. Or some people might say Lord. Or, but most people generally use the term father, Abba as Jesus would say, daddy. So you see God as a father and you relate to him as someone who you can depend on. But how does God relate to us? That's how we relate to God. How does God relate to us? The Bible uses imagery and he, yes, he calls us children. Uh, he talks about vine and branches. He calls us an army. But ultimately, the way the Bible pictures it at the end is that our Christian life is the church as a bride-to-be and Jesus as a husband-to-be. And we just haven't met yet. Because in the days of the Bible, you would have arranged marriages where husbands and wives would hear about each other but not meet yet. They'd read about one another and see little images of one another, but they just haven't met yet. And this movie gets a little bit better because it's actually a love triangle. You see, the bride has commitment issues. Though she's in love with this Jesus, she keeps getting caught up wanting with fame, fortune, and followers. She, she keeps getting caught up in the lust of different aspects of this world. She can't stay focused and so this love triangle is really what our relationship is like and how God sees our relationship. And so the more that you can understand the imagery of a wedding, the more that you can understand that God understands his relationship to us like a marriage, the more you will understand God, sin, the Bible, and the entire story. Look in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, we're going to see, again, John is having a vision, and he sees. And so in verse 6, it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. All right? Then he says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. 
She was given the fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, then he said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. All right, so understand that this wedding feast in one chapter was preceded by dealing with a prostitute or a harlot in the other chapter. So um, in, in, in chapter 18, we talked about Babylon, right? If you remember that a couple weeks ago, we talked about Babylon and Babylon being this prostitute and harlot that's trying to draw away the saints. And he talks about this in Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. He says, salvation, glory, and power belong to God because the judgment and true righteous, uh, righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth. <laughs> so this corruption that this prostitute or harlot is doing is drawing the church away from affection and connection and adoration to Jesus. And so the world, as the Bible talks about, is trying to get our eyes off the Lord. And so it, it, it has this imagery of a prostitute drawing us away. And so it is very important, and that's what we're going to really land on today, is understanding this issue of weddings and marriages and Jesus. And why does he use that imagery of all images? Um, if God uses that image, then he's saying that he wanted to relate to his people not like a king to his subjects, although he's the king of kings. Not as a shepherd relates to sheep, although he's the chief and mighty shepherd. But he wants us to understand our relationship like he is our husband and we are his wife. <laughs> many, many implications to that. The nature of understanding a human and God marriage is understanding first the nature of marriage. Why would he use that image? Well, we, we understand that marriage is permanent. That is in its intention, right? It is understood by, from, in terms of intimacy, as the most intimate human contract possible. Right? And with this binding human contract, you presume that you can always be together. Side note, did you know that 50% of marriages end up in divorce? Did you know that as a fact? Think about that for a second. 50% of marriages don't end well. If I sold you a car and told you in three years there's a 50% chance this car not only will not work, but you'll still be paying on it, would you buy it? Most likely not. Why are people still getting married even though they know it doesn't work half the time? Maybe it is because this issue of permanent love has been woven into our hearts. 
This desire to have someone love me at, as I am in my worst moment and say, I'll never leave. Even though I'm giving 0%, you'll still give me 100%. You'll stay. There is some, no matter how much baggage is in the culture, no, much, no matter how much baggage we've seen, for some people's people still want to be together forever. And so the permanency of it is what Jesus is trying to show us. The other side of this human contract with God that we end up seeing as powerful is that it's comprehensive and not partial. <laughs> Marriage affects every aspect of life. And it presumes that when you say, I am going to be with you, I can have all of you. And so this imagery that the Bible says is that the two become one flesh and that you have everything that that person could possibly offer. This past uh, week, uh, my wife and I, we had a full-fledged conversation about ministry, full-fledged. And I, I, felt, I felt good about the conversation, but I was on my phone while we were talking. So I was like, yeah, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three. And we were done with the conversation. And then she, and I promise you, as I was on my phone, as we were having those conversations, I felt like I sufficiently answered all questions necessary. She said, hey, real quick, can we get some FaceTime after? I was like, you want a FaceTime? Like, or Face? What do you mean? She's like, can we get some talk time after? I was like, talk? Again? I was like, I felt like we just accomplished that, right? And what she's talking about is undivided. So what she was subsequently saying was, your mind was partially somewhere else while you were talking to me. Your mind was somewhere, though your voice was with me. I want your mind, your voice, your eyes. I want all of you. It's comprehensive. And she presumes that when I said I do, she was getting all of the I, right? All of me. So it's, it's comprehensive, not partial. And the interesting thing about this, saints, listen to me, there is no other religion like that. There is no other system that says that the God of the universe is your husband. And he looks at you like his wife. And so this deepens the way that we understand me and the Lord, because if you my daddy, then when I break your heart, you'll be there. But if you my husband, if we have a marriage relationship, now things are changing a little bit in regards to intimacy. Because I believe you should have skin in the game. I believe that you should be all in. Right? And so we then learn something very powerful about sin. If, if this is the ending story, then we learn something very powerful about the way that sin is and what sin does. Sin, if this image is true, sin, therefore, is loving anything more than God. Okay? 
and giving anything the title of your heart, making anything more central to your imaginations and your imagination and your emotions rather than God himself. Because God is not saying, I just want you to obey me like a king or follow me like a shepherd. He's saying, I want to be your supreme love of all of all loves. I want you to love me. And I want it to be comprehensive. And so now when you look at Mark 12 and 30, love the Lord your God with the what? All your heart, soul, mind, your strength. I want your eyes. I want your mind. I want your energy. I want your affection. I presume I have all of you, all of you. And that's why the Bible does not say confess simply with your mind. It says confess with your heart. Your heart. I want your heart. This is a love relationship. And so sin then isn't just doing bad things. It's appointing another lover. And it's having someone rob someone else of the affection they're due that they thought you signed up for. And this is very hard for us to understand, church, because we understand even though we say we love God, we tend to operate with the Lord via duty. Even though we say we don't, we tend to. Imagine if you would, a man and a woman. The husband is spending all his evenings at another woman's house talking about life, talking about his aspirations and dreams and working through problems. And every night, every hour, they're talking. Then they take long trips together. And they're getting really deep. Then the wife confronts the husband. And the husband says, what's wrong with you? I pay the mortgage. They said, well, you have my last name. And she would say, but I don't have your heart. You, I know, honey, you don't get it. You're spending all your time and energy somewhere else. Yes, you do things for me and with, you, with me, but I don't have your heart anymore. Someone else has your heart. I have your, yes, I have your time. Yes, I have your money, but she has your heart. And I didn't sign up for you to just pay me, just to give me roses on Valentine's Day and to come home at night. I want your heart during the day. Like, wouldn't you see that? Ladies are like, ladies look at me like, mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but this is a very easy analogy for us to understand. But ultimately, we tend to describe our relationship in those terms. I go to church. I've been baptized. Oh, I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I pray. I do all these things. And God says, but does something else have your passion? 
I, you're doing all these things. I get it. But do I have your heart? Because you can do those things, but your career can have your heart. Your family can have your heart. Your romantic interests, your books, your political causes, your social causes, they can be your supreme love. Mary J. Blige says, I'm searching for what? A real love. Right? And so what, what, but what she's saying is there are other types of loves that are out there. And God is saying, I want your real love. I want your real energy. I want your real affection. Don't give me duty. I want you to enjoy being around me. I don't want you to have to, to lug yourself to talk to me. I don't want you to just tell me, oh, I did this. I want you to want me. See, it's a marriage. You see, you can say, I pray. And God can say, do you talk to me though? You can say, I love worship songs. But God says, but do you sing to me? You can say, I give money. But God says, but am I your treasure? You see how personal it is. And because we often see the church as a religious institution slash organization that you join and become a member of, we just come in and out. And that's why sometimes it's so easy for us to leave. Because we joined an institution. Not, we, didn't, we didn't sign up for intimacy. We joined an institution. And so when we leave, it's easy to go. Something like a, like a gym membership, where when you leave the gym, when you go to another gym, you're not like at the person at the desk like, it's been real, thank you. Just the way you swipe my card is so dope. And so this should be a, a, a conglomerate, a group of people drawing more intimate with God and one another. And then, listen, if that's the ending scene, if the ending scene is this wedding feast, then you understand how much God, again, longs for us to be connected to him. Um, you ever have somebody tell you, you know, I'm the jealous type? You ever remember tell you that? Like, just, I want to just be up front, okay? If we're going to be together, I'm the jealous type. Right? You, you know anybody like that? That's what the Lord says. Exodus 20, he says, don't make for yourself an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth or below in the waters. Don't bow down and worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am the jealous type. Oh, I'm the jealous God. Yeah, those, that's your God. Okay, that's your, that's your Baal and your Asherah. Okay, I'm the jealous God. I'm jealous. Yeah, that's what you got to deal with. Yeah, that's my issue. <laughs> right? You ever have somebody just tell you up front, like, where they're at? That's what the Lord is like. That's who I am. That's where I'm at. Now, understand this. A jealous person is fiercely protected and vigilant over one's rights or possessions, right? So there's a legitimate jealousy and an illegitimate jealousy. Now, when you're dating someone, 
right? And you just like, you've been going out for a month and they're like, it's, it's nine o'clock and you're home and like you're talking to your mom and they call you and they're like, what you doing now? We're like, well, we were together earlier today and I just got something to do. Like, but I want you, who are you talking to? You're like, oh my God. And you just feel offended <laughs> because you're like, who are you? Like, what is up? Chill, back up. You don't, you don't own me. I am not your possession, right? But it's different when you get married. <laughs> Things change, right? Because jealousy is now a divine right. So, like, There'll be times, you know, I'm a humorous guy, you know. I'll be there in the back, you know, laughing. I'll be in the backstage fast, like, ha, ha, yeah. And there'll be a girl back there, and I'll be, like, laughing with her. My wife has every right to come in and be like, hey, what's up? I like to laugh. What's so funny? Because she's like, his humor is my humor. His jokes, I have partial ownership over all jokes. Ain't no jokes being told that I don't know about, okay? Right? Right? And there's a part of us that's like, yeah, girl, get him. Right? We see that, right? That's what you call a healthy, legitimate jealousy because when you said I do and he said I do, I thought I was getting all that I. You said you do, and that's what Jesus thought. Jesus thought when you confessed with your heart, he thought he was getting all of you. And he hasn't stopped believing that. And he still wants all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He still wants all of that. And he feels like he's legitimate. And he says, I'm the jealous type. Okay. So, that, so that then you understand your relationship to God then is deeper than a duty. And, and, and at the end of this life, it pictures this incredible wedding feast. And we finally see Jesus, the one we've always longed for. As we sung, our hearts adore. For my married people, this helps us understand that in Ephesians 5, 31, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then it says, this, watch this, mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. So it's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 5, you, 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 for the married folks, you know this was the verse that you hopefully went over at some point before you got married. And it said, oh, man, love my wife like Christ loved the church. And the wife's supposed to be submitted like, like the church is submitted to Christ. And you see all these different images there. But when he gets to the end of the chapter, he's like, man, this is a great mystery. But understand, ultimately, the bigger picture, ultimately know that you all are just a small, inaccurate picture of what Christ has been trying to do with the church. You all are pointing people to what Christ does with the church. And he says this mystery is profound. Well, what's the mystery? What is this mysterious thing that we should be curious about when we see a husband and a wife? This is the way it should be. 
the mystery is that marriage is a metaphor of what God does with people when he decides to have a permanent union with them. Marriage is supposed to be this crazy thing. So have you ever um, seen a couple, right? You've seen a couple. And um, you see them, and they've been married, what, 35 years. And they're happy. And they have longevity, and they have joy. And you're at, like, some, you know, cookout with them, and they're laughing, and and you know what you do? You know what you do? You go, what's y'all secret? You ever do that? You go, man, what y'all, what, what, what have y'all done? Y'all happy. I mean, everybody I know, they, they in separate rooms. They don't like each other. What do y'all do? What, what is the secret? And the reason why, you, why that mystery is profound to you is because marriage is supposed to be this declaration to the world saying, you see, we stayed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, there were some tough times, but better or worse, richer or poorer, we stayed. We stayed. And that's supposed to be a picture of what we should see God with us. He's going to stay. No matter how broken I am, no matter how foolishness I am, God says to us, I stayed. I stayed committed to you in spite of of your brokenness. And marriage is supposed to be this imagery of that to the world. So my married people know this. Marriage then isn't a reward, it's a responsibility. In the same way, singleness is not a punishment. And marriage is a responsibility. That you have been given a unique duty to tell the world what it's like when a divine God loves broken people. It is worth noting that this marriage feast that we see in the end of time comes because there were a number of different images God put forth before us. Ones that we may miss Marriage at that time, as you know, was a week long. The Caribbean weddings that I've done feel like a week long. Uh, Praise God. But they're not actually a week long. These times were an entire week of feasting. And there were several things that would happen. There would be a dowry. The dowry would be a property or money brought to a father by the groom as a gift, raising the daughter, for raising the daughter. And the price indicated for whatever they gave them is what they thought of the daughter. And so the day I got married, Ron Silva came down the aisle and I shook his hand. But what they would do is they would not only shake their hand, they would give them money or they would point to whatever they've bought, but that would be a dowry. Another way would be knowing it as a bride price, a bride price. There would be a chalice of wine. 
the bride-to-be would accept the wine similar to an engagement ring. And then there would be the chuppah, (laughs) a highly decorated room in a wing of the father's house for the couples to be together. Oftentimes, the father and the son would work on this together for hours. And then there would be the shofar. The shofar would be a horn that was blown when it was time for the wedding feast to begin. And then lastly, the wedding feast. And the wedding feast was a week long. And so you have all these elements and images that God did. But know this, that in the scriptures, there are this beautiful imagery of how the wedding was already in play. The Bible says in John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, it is, he says, it is finished. In thus he was paying our dowry, telling us how valuable we are, giving his body for us. The chalice of wine, this engagement that he was giving us. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this chalice of wine, is very much like the communion we drink. The chuppah, he says, is the building of this house, this mansion. John 14, two and three says, in my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to what? Prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take to myself so that I am where you also. And then, For those of you trying to think of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the archangel's voice with a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And that is actually what the processional is supposed to be. You notice the preacher will say, all rise for the coming of the bride. And the music plays. And then lastly, you have the wedding feast. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. And so this is our relationship, a marriage relationship. But remember that this is a engagement that we're in. We're in what they call the betrothal period, where we don't see Jesus yet, but one day we will see him face to face. Now, I have one more image I want to show you, but um, it is important that we note that not everyone will be married, but everyone's made for marriage. Not everybody will be married to a human. But everyone has been made for marriage because marriage is nothing more than permanent love. And everyone wants that. 
Everyone who says that, I don't want everyone that says I don't want to be married, everyone who says marriage is a mess, everyone who has parents who are jacked up and all this other stuff, but everyone who says they have a problem with marriage, even those people want permanent love. And so know this, that if you are single, do not try to rush into marriage for permanent love because permanent love is coming, right? And one touch from Jesus will be better than a thousand touches from a human, right? One time he wipes away that tear because even too, even too, when the bride is coming down, the imagery of him taking up that veil and seeing them, and oftentimes the bride will be in tears, and the husband will wipe away the tear. That is a small picture of what Jesus will do when we see him. Know this, though. We haven't been good brides. We haven't been faithful. And even though we haven't been faithful, he's been faithful to us. There is an entire book in the Bible to show us how God feels in a marital relationship with us. It's the book of Hosea. You should read it sometime. It is one of the most, it is one of the most humbling books of the Bible when God's talking about us and him. It is of a prophet who is supposed to marry a prostitute. Marry, have kids with. And in marrying her, this prophet was demonstrating to Israel how he feels about Israel. And so he wanted to show the world. You see, I am with this prostitute to show you how much I care. And then in Hosea 3.1, this is, this is crazy. Hosea 3.1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So this is what's happening. This is not just an adulteress and a harlot. This is a prostitute. And the imagery in Hosea is of Hosea as a prostitute going out, prostituting herself, and Hosea has to go to Gomer, this prostitute, he has to go to her and pay for time with his own wife. Could you imagine that? That as she is out there, he cries out her name, Gomer, I'd like to get time with you. And she's out there with other men, and he says, I'll wait in line. In fact, I'll pay. How much did he pay? I'll pay more because I just want time with you. And he cries out her name, and she ignores him and ignores him. Then finally, she gives him a little time. And God says in Hosea, that's what it's like with me and you. I'm willing to be faithful to you even though you give yourself 
when your heart is divided up for fame or fortune or followers or career or romance, while you are out prostituting your heart, Jesus says, I'd like to get time. I'm willing to wait. Even though you're out there, I'm willing to wait. But I just want to be with you. And this is the faithful Hosea. This faithful Hosea is our faithful God to us. And wouldn't you want to come back when you know he's always available? One day we will be in the wedding with the lamb. Prepare yourself to meet him. Earth is nothing more than preparation to be with him. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we ask you, God, to meet us. Meet us in this time. Holy Spirit, know that we know that we have been inconsistent. But that's how you see our relationship. So God, I don't want to, I want to guard my heart. I want to guard my heart from all the things that could bleed in, God. Protect me, God. Protect my mind and my heart and my soul from loving other things, God. Watch how I use my money, God. Watch how I use my time, God. Because I want to be faithful to you, Jesus. I want to be faithful. And I want to meet you. And I want you to feel and know that you were the only one that had the key to my heart, God. I want you to know that now. I want you to have the crown on my heart, the title of my heart. And so even now, God, even now, Jesus, we remove all other distractions and we lay our hearts before you. In Jesus' name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.